All right, this is part three of my ongoing uh, season-long study on Jesus in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and, and I was led to do this because this is a subject that you don't hear preached in church, the, the fact that the entire scripture is all about Jesus. Um, and, and we fail to recognize that. And Jesus made it perfectly clear. And it comes out of the study of what Jesus said in Luke about the road to Emmaus. And you remember that. Right after the crucifixion, the two disciples are walking dejectedly from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus. Uh, and uh, Jesus comes up to him. He disguises himself, but he comes up and he walks with them all day uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It's about seven or eight miles, uh, and Christ walks with them. Uh, and uh, he says, what's the matter? Why are you so downhearted? Well, don't you know? You're the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know. Jesus Christ, the great prophet, was, was put to death. And we thought that he, he would be with us, that he wouldn't die, and now he's dead. Uh, and Jesus said, oh, you people don't know your Bible. And then he spends the next five, six, seven hours, whatever it is, opening the scriptures, and demonstrating to him that everything in Scripture was about him, was about him. And when I get to heaven, that's one of the first things I'm going to ask for is the videotape of that. <laughs> because that had to be one of the great sermons of all time. Can you imagine Jesus saying and showing chapter and verse, this is about me, this is about me, this is about me. And so, you know, by the time that, that he did that, they, he was going to leave them. And they go, no, no, stay with us, stay with us. And so he, he has dinner with them, uh, and uh, he still didn't reveal himself, but then he went to break the bread. And I'm sure when he broke the bread, it had to be reminiscent of, of the Lord's Supper when he broke the bread. Because it said immediately their eyes were opened. It's Jesus. And he disappeared. And he disappeared. And so they go back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples that they had seen Jesus. Well, that's what this is about. I am trying in a very poor way uh, to do what Jesus did. Uh, and so you'll, you'll give me uh, a mulligan uh, as I try to do this. You give me a mulligan because this is how really I believe God wants you to learn and understand it. So everything is about him. The Bible is written because of Jesus. It's not written so that you, you, you know, you be educated, really. It's written so that you have the roadmap to heaven, and the roadmap to heaven goes directly through Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. There's no other way. And so it's important for us to understand that God's redemptive work for man started before the creation. Really, John, you can say that? Yes, before the Garden of Eden before the world was created, before the universe was created, God knew that his creation, when he would start it, would need a savior, that it would not come without sin. And so from the very beginning of time, it was uh, understood that Jesus would be the redemptive uh, personage that would come to save us. And so the reason for that is that love must be freely given. Jesus, you were, you were effectively created with free will, meaning you could accept God or you could reject God. God didn't want his creation to be a robot. He didn't want it. You know, it's very different than the way we would do it. 
uh, you know, those of us that have dogs know that if we have a pet and the pet doesn't love us, basically, you know, we'd like to give the pet away, right? God's not like that. God's not like that. God gives us the free will to shake our fist at him, to reject him. Uh, and so understanding all that, you understand that God knew that we would need a savior from the beginning of time. And so we see the history of salvation right in the beginning from Genesis right through. Uh, and what we see is that God lets man make mistakes, uh, lets man's dysfunction come to the surface, lets man's sin be obvious because man, God is trying to teach man that you need a savior and that only through the gospel of Jesus Christ can you be saved. And so this becomes very clear from Genesis right on. Uh, and so you need to understand that to understand really the total redemptive work of Christ in every way. Uh, and so uh, today I want you to look at what I refer to as the three offices of Christ. There are three offices, uh, and that is his office as prophet, priest, and king. He is all three. Uh, and from time to time uh, in Scripture, there will be uh, human beings who may have one of those offices. Some may have two of those offices, but nobody had all three. He is, he is all three. And, and so the prophet, understanding the first role, the prophet, beginning uh, with Moses, communicates God's message to the people. That's the role of the prophet. The prophet articulates God's will through the Holy Spirit. Uh, the priest, beginning with Aaron, who was the first priest, uh, acts as an intermediary for the people uh, and offers sacrifices and prayers for the people. Uh, and when he does this, he is also sacrificing for himself. Now, Jesus in that role doesn't sacrifice for himself. He is the one time forever uh, priest. The king, the king, kingdom is exemplified by David, uh, the greatest king of the Israel people. Uh, he rules over the people. These three offices are distinct uh, yet sometimes people will have more than one office. Uh, human office holders are from, obviously, a fallen human species. They perform their duties imperfectly uh, and incompletely, yet we can see in retrospect that each of them is performing an aspect of Jesus Christ. And so what we refer here to as we dig down is what's called in theology typology, Typology, meaning a picture of Christ, a type of Christ. Uh, I used the word last week of a portrait, but that's essentially what it is. As you're going to see in, in each of these instances, that Christ will have a typology of himself exemplified uh, in Scripture. Christ is a prophet in that he perfectly reveals God to us in every way. Uh, he speaks as God. He gives us the word of God. He, uh, he is also a priest uh, in offering himself as the perfect sacrifice for us, uh, uh, cleaning us, taking our sins away from us uh, in every way, uh, and offering us redemption with God. And he is our king, uh, reigning now in heaven. 
uh, and ruling over us as a sovereign Lord. That's the, that's the three roles that Christ has. Now we'll dig down as we go through this to better exemplify what this means. Now the role of prophet is best understood as we examine the life of Moses. Uh, God called Moses uh, to be a great prophet, and Moses was a great prophet. Uh, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, you could turn to that, uh, as you see Moses speaking to the uh, Jewish people, and he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That effectively is the prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ. He's going to raise up a prophet like me from your brothers, from the Jewish people, but it is he who you must listen to. And so based on that statement, uh, which goes back in time uh, 1,500 years before Christ would be born, uh, based on that, the Israelites are waiting on God to raise a prophet uh, who will be like Moses, but actually greater than Moses. And so they're waiting for that to deliver Israel into a new era. Well, of course, they, they thought they had that with Elijah. Then they thought they had that with Elisha. But you see, at the end of the day, they were not the prophets that Moses is speaking. There's only one that falls into that role. Uh, and you, you see the statement uh, in the New Testament about this in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3 where it says Jesus has been found worthy of a greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. There it is, Jesus greater than Moses, greater than Moses, God himself. Uh, and so unmistakably, you see, serving as a prophet during his earthly walk in ministry, uh, Jesus was often recognized as such uh, by his disciple and by others. Uh, when he feeds the 5,000 uh, men with five loaves and two fish, and by the way, he fed that day probably about 18,000, according to theologians, because that was just the men. Uh, and and uh, what you see there uh, in John chapter 6, verse 14 says, quote, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. How about that? There they go. They recognized it. And so you see uh, Jesus being recognized for who he is. Then in another passage in, in his walk, in his ministry, he raises a widow's son. The crowd of people exclaim, and if you look at Luke chapter 7, verse 16, you'll see this statement. A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And so there were people that recognized that Jesus was the prophet. They recognized it. Uh, and so throughout his ministry, as Jesus walked in this world, he was well aware uh, that people were calling him a prophet. And he was well aware of his prophetic role, as he even explains the significance of the law. Uh, and I want you to turn to Matthew 5, verse 17. This is an important passage in Scripture uh, because certainly it's important 
to people that do not know Christ. Certainly it's important if you come across Jewish people uh, who have some resentment towards Christ. Uh, and it's important for you because it outlines why we walk with Jesus. Look what he says there in Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now let's understand something. Even as Jesus came uh, to be effectively the new covenant, he wasn't destroying the old covenant. He was effectively completing the old covenant. This is important for you to understand that. He didn't come to abolish the law. The law still could exist. The law still had its right. When we talk about the law, we're talking about the Ten Commandments, effectively. We're not talking about all those laws that uh, Moses articulated. They were effectively Jewish laws. But we're talking really about the Ten Commandments here. Uh, and so Jesus never abolished the Ten Commandments. We live by the Ten Commandments, but we fall by the Ten Commandments. That's the point. Not one of us can ab absolutely live up to any of the commandments. We fail. And Christ came to give us grace, grace to fulfill that walk. Uh, and he's saying that that's, the, that's his responsibility to fulfill the law. So when Jesus came, it's as if God put a period at the end of the Old Testament to say it is completed, it, it is done. And I told you uh, that the last Passover that I believed sanctified by God was the Holy Supper that Jesus held in Jerusalem right before his death. Uh, and the reason I say that is because at that point, the old covenant is now replaced by the new covenant. There no longer would be animal sacrifice. And, you know, if you have Jewish friends, you can ask them this very simple question. You know, as I read your Bible, uh, when you uh, have Passover, uh, and you're supposed to have animal sacrifices, are you doing that? Well, I don't know of any, any synagogue anywhere in the United States or, frankly, anywhere in the world where that's being done. They've moved on. Well, the point of it is this, that that's why the Passover had been fulfilled. It's over. Now, Jesus is the Passover lamb. We talked about this last week. This is important for you to understand. Jesus became the redemptive Passover lamb. Uh, and scripture made it clear that when the Jews were told uh, that when they were in Egypt, that God, the death angel would come and that they were to take the blood of the sacrifice and put it over the door, that the death angel would see that and would pass them by, would pass them by. Uh, and, and when they celebrated the Passover dinner, they took the, the, bone, the meat from the lamb. They were not to break any of the bones. Now, why do you think they were told not to break any of the bones? Because 1,400 years later, the very uh, lamb of God would be on a cross, and when they went to break his legs, he would die, and they, his legs would not be broken. And so there you have it, the very fulfillment of prophecy of who Christ is. And so this is, this is important for you to understand as God ties a bow on the entire Bible. That's why we read the Bible. We read the Bible to understand Jesus. 
And by understanding Jesus, we understand, understand God. You cannot understand God unless you understand Jesus. He is the personification of God himself. And so here he's telling you, the entire law will be completed. I am not destroying any of it. Uh, and that's the way it is, because we know that as we walk with Christ, now that we have faith in Christ, now that we walk with grace, yes, we're going we're gonna to fail and we're going to fall, and yet God will pick us up. He will wash us. Wash us. Uh, he will redeem us. And that's the nature of the new covenant. Can you imagine if you were uh, fettered to the old covenant uh, and your standing with God was only going to be determined by how well you, you completed the law? Are you kidding me? Come on. We're doomed to fail. We're doomed to fail. And God understood this. That's why he gave us Jesus. And so we can see that Jesus is not just a prophet, but he's the consummate prophet because he is the son of God. Uh, he doesn't just speak on God's behalf. He's God himself speaking as if he were the father. He is God himself in every way. And so Jesus now is also the perfect priest like no other priest before him. He is vastly superior to Aaron, who was the first high priest in numerous ways. Now, Aaron offers sacrifices for the people, but he's also offering sacrifices for himself uh, because he is a sinner. Well, Christ is sinless. Uh, and so when Christ offers sacrifice, he's not offering a sacrifice for himself. He's offering it for you. He sits at the right hand of God. And his sacrifice was once and forever. It doesn't have to be done repetitively. His sacrifice is eternal. Uh, he is sinless, and he has atoned for all of us. Uh, Aaron performs his duties in a man-made tabernacle, which is perishable. But Jesus, Jesus appears directly to the Father, right next to the Father on our behalf. Jesus prays for you on a regular basis. That's one of the things that I was astonished to study. And if you read the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 16 through 18, you will see Jesus telling us that he's praying for us. Can you imagine that Christ, God himself, is praying for you? That astonishes me that he would do that. But you see, that's his role as priest. He is the eternal high priest. He's praying for you. So when you're down... When you're depressed, when you're out, when you're going through dark times, Christ is praying for you, even when you don't know what to pray, what you don't know what to pray for. Have you been in that position? I have, where honestly I'll get up and I'll just go, oh, God, maybe it's just me. But I, I, know, I know that that's the human condition. We often fall into that. We don't even know how to articulate our prayers. But Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is able to see that and recognize that and to pray for you. Uh, and so it's important to understand this. Look, Aaron was the high priest, but his call was only temporary uh, and had to be repeated. But Christ's role as priest is once and forever. Uh, take a look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 25. Speaking again about Jesus uh, and his role, 
as the eternal high priest, it says there, nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. What a perfect way of phrasing what Jesus is. He doesn't have to go in year after year. He did it once and for all. He was crucified. He doesn't have to bring in the blood of the sacrifice. It was his blood. And I would say to you, folks, that when you go to church, be particularly mindful of taking communion. Be particularly mindful of that. We celebrated communion yesterday in our church. We try to do it. I know that our Roman Catholic brothers do it every, every service. We do it about once every six weeks uh, because we don't want it to become repetitive. But recognize what's being done there, that you are effectively acknowledging the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, attaching yourself to the body, uh, and, th- and looking at yourself and asking God to forgive you. This is part of the Christian process. Uh, introspection. God, look at me. Wash me. Help me to be the kind of Christian you want me to be. I know that I have failings. I know that I'm short of the mark. And, and that's what you do, and that's your prayer. It's as if Jesus has walked with you when he washed the, the feet of the disciples. You understand that? He, uh, he says you are already clean, but you've walked in a dirty world. Yes, you're clean, you're saved, you're going to God, but still... The, the dirt, the detritus of this world comes out on you. And so God washes us. So all that is taking place uh, with communion. Now, Jesus is also presaged in the Old Testament uh, as king. Uh, and you see this in Psalm 132. This is now 800 years, 1,000 years, really, 1,000 years before Christ will be born. And the Lord swore an oath to David uh, that he would never turn back from him. Look at what it says there in 132 verse 11. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. And he goes on to say a throne forever. One of the sons of your body, well, it's Jesus Christ who would be in the lineage uh, of David. So here you go, uh, a demonstration of the kingly authority of Christ. Uh, Similarly, the prophet Nathan uh, declares to David uh, that uh, the Lord will make you a house. Uh, And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall be one from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. After you die, I will establish your kingdom. I will establish it forever uh, through your own lineage, and that becomes Jesus Christ. There can be only one way this can be done eternally. It can only be done eternally through Jesus Christ. Uh, This promise, effectively, of an eternal king from David's line can only be filled through Jesus Christ. Here it is, Jesus Christ alone. Uh, Paul records the very fulfillment of this promise. Uh, You can look at Romans chapter 1, verse 3, uh, and there Paul says, regarding his son, meaning Jesus, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of 
David. There you have. You see how everything comes together? Christ descending from the very lineage of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the perfect and everlasting king of all creation. Uh, whereas all of his predecessors are all imperfect uh, mortals. Uh, this was incredibly explained right at the beginning of Jesus' life in this world uh, at the announcement of his birth. And we don't focus on this enough. I want you to focus on what Gabriel told Mary. Uh, and this is Luke chapter 1, verse 30. Now I want you to know how, how we know that this is accurate. We know it's accurate, certainly, because the Holy Spirit gave it to Luke. But Luke was a tremendous historian. Luke interviewed Mary. And I'm sure he interviewed her on more than one occasion. And so Mary delivers the very message that Gabriel gave her. And I'm sure that God gave supernatural memories to these people. So that effectively, when they heard these messages, they're not like us, where we'll leave here today, we can't find our car in the parking lot. <laughs> well, maybe that's just me. But, but, but I want you to recognize the fact that God gave them effectively supernatural hearing and memories so that she could remember exactly the very words of the angel. Uh, look at here, Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And Jesus means Savior. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, in that one short sentence or two, you have seen summarized everything that I told you that God was doing with Christ. First of all, he would be the Savior. His name meant Savior. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of God. He is divine. This is no mere human being. And he will have the throne of his father, David. He comes directly out of the lineage of David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants, meaning he will reign over Israel forever. And his kingdom will never end. There it is. There it is. That's effectively a summary of everything that Christ will be that the, that the uh, Old Testament will tell us. And so through Jesus, you see, uh, we also see fulfilled God's command to Adam that he have dominion over the created world. Well, yes, God told Adam that. Then Adam fell. He fell in sin. And so the dominion changed, meaning what? Well, he would still have a dominion uh, over some of the, of the world, but he would never have dominion over the, the demon part of the world. He would never have dominion over Satan, which, frankly, if had he not fallen, he would not be subject to that. But now through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, we do have dominion over that. That's why, even as you're engaged in spiritual warfare, and if you have any issues about spiritual warfare, go to the church website. I'm on an eight-part series on that. It'll be interesting for you to see what we're all engaged in. I want you to know something. God is with us. He protects us. And through Christ, he gives us success 
over the demon world, over the spiritual warfare. Uh, and so this becomes important. And so not only did Christ create the universe, because Christ was the creative agent designated by God, uh, but in his power, he continues to sustain the universe uh, in every way. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you study science, science will tell you that the very aspect of creation, and you reduce it to its smallest part, uh, effectively are these interstitial forces. That's the very forces that keep the molecules together. Uh, and if the interstitial forces were ever cut, then everything in the universe would effectively ev evaporate. It would all come apart. Christ is the interstitial force. He is there in every way, keeping everything together. It's amazing. And one day he'll say, no more. He'll say that. Uh, but right now, that's not the way it is. Uh, and so uh, it's important for you to understand that continuing work of Christ. Uh, so Christ sits there at the right hand of God. He's praying for you as a priest. He's praying for you. And he continues to superintend the entire universe as he keeps it all together. Uh, he sustains it. He holds it together. And he tends it with loving care, uh, giving us time to spread the gospel. This is important. This is your role. This is what you're called to do. Make no mistake about it. Don't shirk this. Don't walk away and say, well, I'm not going to rip. I can't speak in public. No. No, you don't speak in public, but you speak one and one. You're the father of a family. You're the, you're the husband of a spouse. There's so many ways God has called you to spread the gospel. You understand this? And this is a responsibility that God intends for you to fulfill in every possible way. And so as we recognize this, we see that Jesus is in creation past, present, and future. He sits astride the entire Universe. Can you imagine that this God that sits like this would come to this earth as a baby uh, and walk with human beings, failed human beings, for three years and then allow those human beings that didn't get him to put him on a cross? Can you imagine? That is how great your God is. There is no other religion where their God allows himself to be put on a cross. No other religion where, where their God effectively allows himself to be crucified. None. None. Only ours. Because in our religion, you see, we understand it is the nature of God, the love of God, uh, as he put everything together. It's something that you need to consider on a daily basis as you reach out and communicate in prayer, pray with him. Now, Paul writes these same things that I've just communicated, only he does it much better. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, And he, meaning Jesus, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. How's that? Does that effectively say it? That's how great your Jesus is. He holds everything together. Now, there are many references in the Old Testament, to Jehovah as the shepherd of Israel, I would say to you that you can interpret those statements as being specific references to Christ. 
for example, in Genesis 49, verse 24, uh, this is effectively a series of statements by Jacob, and he refers to his son Joseph, and you know all about Joseph, and he says there in that verse, yet his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. Well, who do you think the mighty one of Jacob is? It's Jesus. Jesus, the recognition that Jesus was there lifting and affirming Joseph up, helping him to be able to stand uh, and complete the work that he, that he had, that God had for him, where he would become the prime minister, effectively, of Egypt. Look also at Psalm 23. Verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's Jesus. That's who that refers to. He's your shepherd. He is the great shepherd. I shall not want. Christ himself, you see, uh, in John 10, would refer to himself as the great shepherd. And so all those references relating to the shepherd uh, in Scripture, the Old Testament, are about Christ. Uh, the same reasoning applies to the references uh, in Psalm 22, uh, the good shepherd dying for his sheep. And then in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. Let's take a look uh, at that, if you would. First Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And when the sheep, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. How about that? Look at a couple of verses before that. It says, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care, serve as overseers. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. God is giving you instructions on how to live your life, how to lead those people that he designates you to lead, whether it's your family, your children, your country club, your church, you've all been designated in some ways to have some leadership position. He's telling you, don't lord it over people. Use Jesus as the example. He was the chief shepherd. Don't do anything for money. We don't do anything for money. You know, that's why when God called me uh, to start the church, uh, I covenanted with God that I would never take a salary, ever, ever. How could I do that? Well, he paid me in advance. How's that? He paid me in advance, and I understood that. I understood it. But the point was I could never, ever put a dollar value on the privilege of serving God. It's like this. You know, you can't put a dollar value on what this is. God has called you. He's called me. And so we have an obligation to walk with him, to serve him, to advance the kingdom of God. This is what he has called us to do. Uh, and, and you see it over and over and over again in Scripture. Take a look further at Isaiah uh, 63. Take a look at that. Isaiah 63, uh, verse 1. 
verses 7 to 9. I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yet the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. In all their distress, he too was distressed. And the angel of his presence Save them. Notice that. The angel of his presence saved them. In love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. The angel of his presence, meaning whenever Israel was saved, whenever there was an issue, the angel of his presence was there. He himself was there throughout the Old Testament. The next verse is sad. Yet they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's the sad news, that as Christ walks onto the stage, Israel exits stage left. So sad. But there will come a time when they will stand. There will come a time when they will become evangelists uh, for Jesus Christ in every possible way. We know that. Uh, and so you see this. Uh, and so here you see God's work and, and preservation of his people appearing in uh, in his form to protect them. Now, finally, Psalm 72 indicates that God's continued purpose is to bring all creatures in the earth under the authority of God. All creatures, not just us, not just Jews, but all creatures. Look at Psalm 72, verse 11. No earthly king could hope to fulfill this vision. Well, it says there, May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. All kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. That's, that's what's going to happen. Uh, and that's indicated right there in Psalm 72. No earthly king could ever, ever hope to fulfill that vision. Impossible. And so this passage is clearly prophetic, all right? This is now 800 years before Christ would be born, uh, and messianic in every way. The theme is also carried forward into the New Testament with Jesus declaring, and this is Matthew 28, verse 18, Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How about that? All authority on heaven and in earth is given to Christ. That's who your Christ is. Uh, and so you see right from the beginning of Genesis, all of this coming together. Uh, at the same time that God pronounces judgment on Adam and Eve. Judgment because they've fallen and sinned and disobeyed. He then pro promises them in some shadowy terms. But we understand it clearly that, clearly that he will provide a means of salvation to the human race when he says that the seed of the woman, her offspring, will bruise the head of the serpent. That's Genesis 3.15. With the, the benefit of hindsight, and especially through subsequent Old Testament and New Testament revelations, we can see without much difficulty that God is promising a savior 
who will come from a woman and not from a man. Right there in Genesis, very clearly articulated. In fact, the writer of Hebrews reveals that Moses himself had faith, in effect, had faith in Christ. Take a look at Hebrews 11, verse 24. And this is, I believe, is revealed through the Holy Spirit to the writer of Hebrews, but recognizing that Moses had faith in Jesus. Uh, and it says there, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. Underline that. Disgrace for the sake of Christ. Well, you might say, I don't understand this. Jesus wasn't there. Yeah, Jesus was there. All right? He understood what he was being called to do. It was all about Jesus. As of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. And let me say this to you. I want you to live your life like this. You live in this world. I want you to recognize there's a reward waiting for you on the other side. It's there. Okay? It's there. Uh, and look, do we walk because we know we're going to get a quid pro quo? No. We don't do that. We walk because we love him. Because we honor him. Because we call to do that. But he will honor you. There will be a reward for you uh, on the other side. I can tell you that. Um, uh, and, and it says here, by faith he left Egypt, verse 27. He left Egypt not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. Well, who do you think is invisible? Jesus. Jesus. He understood what this was all about. By faith... He kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. You understand, as Moses in this role of prophet understood it, he saw what was coming down in the future. And so Moses, you see, in this very situation uh, can be likened to Paul. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, take a look at it. And this is what Paul says, and I say this is how you should live. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Can I get an amen? amen. That's how you are to live. Everything else that you know in this world is rubbish. Everything that you think you've worked together to lift up, all your stocks and your houses and your real estate and your relationships, all of them are effectively rubbish as long as you know Jesus Christ. And when you know Jesus Christ, it all comes into perfect vision because then you know how to put these things together. That's how God wants you to live. Uh, and, and Jesus said a very similar thing in, in the Beatitudes. Uh, and he said this uh, in the Beatitudes. Let me just get the citation for that. Uh, that's in Matthew 5, verse 11. He said, Blessed are you when others revile you 
and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, many of you have been persecuted. Many of you have been reviled. Many of you have been put down. Uh, and, and sometimes you don't even know it. But you've lost friends. You've lost relationships because you've walked with Christ. I can tell you flat out. It's happened to me in several churches. I know it for a fact. That as you walk with Jesus Christ and God has called you and may be calling you to do some great things, there are people that are not going to walk along with you, who are going to revile you, who are going to be jealous of you. I want to lift you up and tell you that Christ walks with you. And he's telling you that you will have a great reward. This is how God wants us to live, uh, to be knowledgeable about this. And so if we believe, and we do, that all scripture is breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, then it should be easy to believe that the writer of Hebrews uh, isn't placing his own thoughts in the mind of Moses and reporting them as a revelation. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. Rather, the Holy Spirit inspired him to report what lay behind Moses' action. You're getting a behind-the-curtain look. That's how Moses could walk uh, with God because he had the vision <coughs> of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, one of the things that we see in typology about Jesus, and we see this here, is that right from the very beginning of the Israelites being called out of Egypt, that Christ was walking with them. Uh, and uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, you'll read the following. Uh, and this is Paul effectively giving you insights from the Holy Spirit. And Paul says about the Israelites, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drinks. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. How about that? There it is, right from the beginning, as they walked out of Egypt. Christ was there. He was there in the cloud. He was there in the manna. He was there in the water. He was there in the preservation of them in every aspect. He was there in the protection. It was Jesus Christ walking with the Jewish people. Uh, and so it is clear that the Savior of the Old Testament is the same as the Savior in the New Testament. The rock was Christ. Look at Exodus chapter 17. Beginning with verse 1. And here they are. They need water. And they're complaining. What's new? Verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place, as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? 
But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt or make us and our children and livestock die of of thirst? Then Moses cried to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. You must love Moses, don't you? Oh, this guy is unbelievable. The Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Go, and I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massa and Meribah. Can you imagine? Now, I want you to understand there that the rock is Jesus Christ. And so when he took the staff and he struck the rock, effectively, typologically, it was a preview of the crucifixion. Jesus would be struck. He would be hit. He would be crucified. And when the rock was struck, water would come out. Life giving, life saving water in the midst of the desert. That is Jesus Christ. That is the nature of salvation. This is what's going on right there. 1,500 years before he would be born, you see Christ in the Old Testament. Now look at Numbers chapter 20. Verse 1. Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. They need water again now. Now they've been walking in the wilderness for 40 years. You think they would have learned. God has taken care of us. We have to have faith. No, no, unfortunately that's not the case. And so Numbers chapter 20, verse 1. In the first month of the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Sin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. That's Moses' sister. I want you to reflect on that. His sister dies. He's obviously depressed. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And remember, there's food being delivered to them every day. All right? Every day uh, food is being delivered to them. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down, and the glory of the Lord appeared before them. And I believe the glory of the Lord is Jesus Christ there. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff And you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. You will bring bring water out of the rock for the community, so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and the livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Whoa. I made a mistake. 
but it was a big one. I want you to understand his sister had died. He was depressed and he was fed up with these quarrels, these people who were constantly uh, accusing him. He lost his mind. He's a human being, all right? And so he's told by God himself, I believe Jesus, he's told, speak to the rock. Why? Because Christ has only been crucified once. You understand? Listen to this. Jesus can only be crucified once. When the rock was struck the first time, that was effectively the typology of the crucifixion. The second time you don't crucify him again, you speak to him, you pray to him, you acknowledge him as the God of the universe, but you instead, Moses, ignored me and you struck it twice. You don't strike Jesus twice. You pray to him, you acknowledge him, he's your Lord. And what with the judgment? You will not walk into the promised land. Wow. Amazing. So great a man as Moses, yet he fell. And you see how God deals with him. Now Moses is in heaven. Make no mistake about it. Moses has a great reward in heaven. One of the greatest prophets of all time. But God wants us to learn from these things. And so I'm giving you this so that you recognize the very typology of Jesus Christ. The Bible is about Jesus. God gave you the Bible so that you would understand who God is, so that you would come to terms with how great Christ is. In every way, from Genesis right through the end, it's all about Christ in every possible way. Amen, guys? Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you for what you've given us today. I thank you for your words, Lord. I thank you for the Holy Spirit that has anointed these words. Lord, let it resonate in our heart. Let every man leave here with the knowledge that you are God. Let us lead our lives and walk with you in an ever more righteous way. Protect our men. Bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. 